Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. Hello, Neil. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm doing okay. It's good to see you. It's really great to see you. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for inviting me. Um, as you know, you were like one of the most impressive people I ever met in law school when we were at, at Yale. You've just blown me away in your career. So it is a real treat to be here with you on this podcast. Thank you so much. It's an honor to hear that, especially coming from you. I'm Tali Farhadian-Weinstein, and this is Hearing. I wasn't kidding when I told my guests on the show today how much his good opinion meant to me. Neil Katyal holds a singular place in our cultural discourse about the law. His Twitter feed is an invaluable source of insight and analysis of what lately feels like a daily stream of legal crises. He's argued more than 40 cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. He also appears regularly as a commentator on MSNBC, and he's currently part of the team prosecuting the Minneapolis police officers in the case of George Floyd's death. Recently, he's been sounding the alarm about the Trump administration's push to confirm a new Supreme Court justice in the waning days before the election. Someone was just asking me to describe you, um, and I said one of the many things that you are is now like the Kim Kardashian of the law when it comes to social media and just the way you are able to explain so many like deeply important questions about our constitutional order uh, at a time where a new one rises up every day. Oh, thank you. It doesn't come naturally to me, and I never really thought I'd be doing this kind of public figure thing, but um, in the last few years, I've just felt compelled to do anything I can to educate people about what's going on, because I think it's a pretty unprecedented threat to what America is all about. I originally invited Neil on the show to talk about justice reform more broadly, and we got to that eventually in our conversation. 
But we are at a profound moment of transition in the Supreme Court as an institution, and we just had to talk about it. Trump has said that he was, quote, saving his nominee, Amy Coney Barrett, a woman, to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg, strongly suggesting that in his mind, it made sense to replace one woman with another. But considering that whoever assumes the seat will be replacing a feminist hero, I wanted to talk to Neil about the legacy of the women of the court, particularly because he and I have some unique connections to them. Like me, Neil spent the early days of his legal career as a clerk on the court. He worked closely with Justice Elena Kagan. He was her deputy in the Solicitor General's office and replaced her as acting Solicitor General when she moved on to the bench. He argued many times before Justice Ginsburg. In my case, I feel a sort of spiritual connection with Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who began her career as a prosecutor in the office I'm now seeking to lead, District Attorney of Manhattan. But I thought I'd start the conversation with Neil by telling him a story about one of my mentors, the woman I clerked for during my time at the Supreme Court, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. There was a unwritten tradition at the court, I don't know if this was true when you were clerking there, Neil, where Justice Ginsburg and Justice O'Connor competed for who would get the first opinion out the door. Uh, oh, yeah. The, <laughs> right? And like, even that is an interesting statement on how these two women were programmed. Totally unnecessary competition taken incredibly seriously by them and then by necessity by the people who worked for them. And I was assigned to be working on Justice O'Connor's first opinion, and it was just a very boring and complicated case about an interpretation of the Carriage of Goods by Sea Act, COGSA. And Justice Ginsburg, as I remember, had an easier opinion. And so we were already starting this race with like a broken angle. And I'm stressing out trying to get, you know, something ready for Justice O'Connor. And she came up to my desk one day and she said, get your shoes on. We're going to see the Dan Flavin exhibit at the National Gallery, you know, in the middle of, let's say, a Tuesday afternoon. And I remember saying, well, I'm doing this and you want me to go there. So which would you prefer? And she said, I want both. That was her brand of feminism was never to shed any responsibilities to just take on more. Right. And you know, this was a person who, before our 7.30 a.m. exercise class at the Supreme Court every morning, had already done the food shopping for her family. And she once told me that whatever station she had in life, she always went home and made dinner for her family and cleaned up dinner, you know, whether she was the majority leader of the state Senate or Supreme Court justice. And I just wonder if this sense of the Supreme Court justice and maybe particularly a woman sitting on the Supreme Court being a kind of superhero resonates with you and brings to mind how you view Justice Kagan, for example. Yeah, I, it does. Um, I mean, first of all, before we get to Justice Kagan, the story you're saying about Justice O'Connor not shedding responsibilities, and that was her brand of feminism, when you're in the situation of having to shatter boundaries um, and defy expectations, you often don't have the luxury of only being good at some things. You kind of got to be good at everything. Right. Um, and I see it sometimes with immigrants too. Mm. I mean, I think my parents, you know, even me to some extent to have a bit of that mentality of 
I'll have one job, two jobs, three if I mm. need them. You know, um, so I do think Justice Kagan, to answer the last part of your question, mm-hmm. does carry that spirit forward. I don't know that I've ever met anyone who works harder than her. I mean, when I was her deputy, like I'd come in at 6 a.m. She'd be there. I'd leave like at 10 p.m. She'd still be there. It's so interesting to hear you say all of that, Neil, because you know I've been feeling very emotional about Justice O'Connor as the national conversation has been around Justice Ginsburg. And I remember I once asked Linda Hirschman, who wrote a book called Sisters-in-Law about the two of them, what it felt like to pair them because they were really quite different uh, and quite different in the way they approached jurisprudence. And she said, well, the thing that they obviously both had in common is they had some kind of capacity not to assimilate a sense of inferiority, even though that was always around them. And they just felt that they were entitled to govern. And of course, I think that is fueled by a kind of work, you know, work ethic uh, that I do connect to the immigrant work ethic. I'll tell you just another quick story. Uh, when my parents came to visit the Supreme Court, you know, they were they were nervous. It's intimidating that the building, the figure of Justice O'Connor, all of that. And my father was drawn to a small picture she had on the wall of her chambers of the ranch that she grew up on. And my dad grew up without electricity in Iran. So he was looking at the picture and he said to her, this looks familiar. It looks like where I grew up. And Justice O'Connor said to him, well, yes, of course, we were immigrants too, describing herself and her family as immigrants in the American Southwest. And I thought that was so beautiful. It was so generous. She wanted him to feel in- included and connected. I know it's really, it's like emotional just to think about it. At Justice Ginsburg's funeral, I think the rabbi said that she had the imagination to conceive of a world that was different. And certainly Justice O'Connor did. And they did live their lives in a way that didn't, you know, bring in the inferiority complexes that they must have grown up with, with people doubting them at every turn. And, you know, Justice Ginsburg famously graduating at the top of her class but not being able to get a job. Um, At the same time, I do feel like both of them did something that I remember one of my uncles said to me when I was about 10 years old. He said, you know, if you want to get ahead, you're going to have to be better than everyone else. Don't just think you can be as good as everyone else. You've got to be better. Right. And I think that both of them did internalize that lesson. Um, And yeah, it manifested in everything, even the silly stuff, like who's going to get the first opinion out? Right. Um, Who's going to ask the first question at oral argument? It was invariably one of those two. I mean, you know, I'm going to be arguing my first Supreme Court case with this eight-member court in four weeks, this big LGBT rights case. And, you know, ordinarily, Justice Ginsburg would ask the first question. And I know I'm going to tear up when yes. someone asks the first question. Yes. And I think, you know, while we are paying tribute to Justice Ginsburg, we have to say that she really laid the groundwork for marriage equality in her jurisprudence. Right? I mean, 100%. It's a- she had this concept of, you know, skim milk marriage, which is kind of is, her brilliance was sometimes just a phrase that got to the core of what the thing was about. Like um, in Shelby County, she has this line saying, you know, throwing out the Voting Rights Act because there aren't current incidents of voting discrimination is kind of like throwing your umbrella out uh, because it's not raining. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's right. like, it's perfect. Yeah. Tell me about Justice Sotomayor, uh, who who I think is kind of a become a, taken on the role of O'Connor in some ways in, in her role in oral arguments, at least. Yes, very yeah. much. She cares about the facts. She asks a bunch of questions, very pointed, sharp questions like this O'Connor. 
In particular, I think, you know, because she was a prosecutor, she has some really sound instincts about the abuses that prosecutors mm. um, have mm. engaged in. And that's something, Tali, I know that you're spending yes. a lot of time thinking about and which is not like, oh, you know, let criminals all go free or anything like that. Right. But to just have some sensible boundaries and rules because actually that's what gives the system legitimacy and strength and allows us actually to go after criminals is mm. because the system has respect and it has balance and is calibrated. So the thing about Justice Sotomayor is her ability to inspire the next generation and the generation after that. And um, it's now been reported that one of the things the president said to her right after he gave her the job was, don't stop doing that. Go out mm. into the community because she's such a real person. I mean, she can talk to my mom who's 85. She can talk to a kid who's five. She can inspire you. Can, you just can't come away from a meeting with her and not have your jaw drop. And she can relate. I mean, she's a better politician, frankly, than most of the politicians yes. in my town. Yeah. But, yeah, uh, Sayeth Neal, who lives in Washington, D.C. Exactly. But the, the story I want to tell is this about that. Yeah. So um, I have a rule, basically, like if a high school invites me to speak, I generally try and go wherever it is. Um, so about six years ago, I accepted an invitation to go to a school in, I think, in Wyoming, and then a school in rural Hawaii. I was going to go to Hawaii anyway for work. So I go to both these places, and they were on the same trip. I go to the first one in Wyoming, and I'm like, you know, it's supposed to be a big deal for them. They don't have like a Supreme Court lawyer, blah, 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 come. And so like, I'm giving all this. And then at the end of it, you know, they, they ask some nice questions and I'm walking out and they say, oh, we want to show you something. And they show me and they said, oh, this is a picture of us with Joseph Sotomayor. She was here <laughs> last year. So I'm like, okay, you know, that's great. Okay. So, I mean, I'm, ex- I'm glad actually that they had, you know, I wasn't the first and someone else came. Then I go to Hawaii. And literally, the first question in Hawaii was, when Justice Sotomayor was here last year, she said, like, okay, she is living what President Obama asked her to live um, when he gave her the job, which is not just be a great Supreme Court justice in the building, but be a great Supreme Court justice out of the building, too. Uh, And in that sense, I think she really is very well paired with Justice O'Connor because, uh, you know, the world has changed so much, it's hard to remember this, but... Justice O'Connor was a full-fledged celebrity uh, when she was first appointed. She was actually somebody that people recognized, even when by the time she was 75 when I clerked for her, it took 15 minutes to walk down the street because not only did everyone want to talk to her, but like the finest politician, she wanted to talk to everybody. Uh, And I always thought, well, if she hadn't wound up on the Supreme Court locked in, she could have been the first woman to be president of this Absolutely. country. I mean, and it's so important for the court to have justices who actually like people who are true humans, um, you know, because they're called to decide the most wrenching issues of the time, whether it's marriage equality or abortion or the right to die or, you know, the criminal justice issues we're talking about, you know, you've got to be able to understand and have empathy and reverence as Justice O'Connor did for what people go through in their lives. So we're talking about the diversity of experiences and viewpoints that are critical to doing the work of the court. And I agree with you. And we've also talked about the justices' personalities being so different and important to their output. And so I have to ask you, Neil, the question that is on so many people's minds right now, which is, should the Supreme Court 
be bigger? Well, um, I, I think it's at a size that is working. So I, you know, hate the idea that the size will go up because of some really horrible actions by one political party. But I think it's inevitable that if the Republicans do try and push Judge Barrett through, that the Democrats will increase the size of the court to 13. Um, I just think that it'd be hard to not do that given all the monkeying that the Republicans have played. Um, and that does present some opportunities too. You're absolutely right. Diversify the court along a number of dimensions, which could be really great. Um, but because the institution is generally working, I'd rather not see it done by expanding the size of the court, but rather by thinking about who goes on the court and making sure that that really does reflect the experience of life. Um, and, you know, to not have an openly gay justice on the court, I just, you know, in 200 plus years, I find really problematic. I think it would be incredible to have an immigrant on the court, you know, someone who, you know, the court hears so many immigration cases to have someone who comes from a different place and who, you know, uh, is experienced. Um, well, let me push you on that just a little, a little, because you say it's working as it is, but the court now gets twice as many petitions um, for certiorari for discretionary review of cases than it got, you know, let's say, 30 years ago. Um, and as I understand it, it's producing about half as many opinions because the opinions are so much more complex uh, and longer. Right. So maybe putting out like 75 opinions a year instead of about 150. Uh, would it be so bad to have a court that was just deciding more? Well, it's not clear to me if you increase the number of justices that they'll decide more. They might just squabble more <laughs> about the cases that they have. Um, Fair so. enough. I I will just offer one more observation, Neil. So uh, because of an accident of history, I got to clerk on two different courts. You know, as you know, uh, an incarnation of the Supreme Court is named after its chief justice. And I clerked for Justice O'Connor on the last year of the Rehnquist Court. And then now Chief Justice Roberts had been nominated to replace her. And then Justice Rehnquist, I guess somewhat unexpectedly, passed away. And Roberts was renominated for his spot. And long story short, Justice O'Connor wound up serving unexpectedly another term in 2005 and asked me to stay on. So I was there for the first year of the Roberts court. And I will just tell you uh, how surprised I was that the change of just one justice had such a profound effect on the institution and that year felt really different than the one that came before. And I just wonder if it's so good for the institution to be so tied uh, to individuals. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a complicated one. You know, there's certainly times, and I've been part of them, in which the court acts in the most magisterial, amazing way. My very first case on Guantanamo, in which I represented Osama bin Laden's driver, you know, the lowest of the low, and we sue the highest person in the land, the president, and we win. That's a remarkable thing for the Supreme Court to do. I mean, in many other countries, this driver would have been shot. That's the court acting in its finest tradition. But, you know, I argued the Muslim ban case at the Supreme Court uh, three years ago and lost it five to four. Um, and I, you know, that was very hard for me to get over because I just thought that was the most fundamentally un-American 
decision that the court could render. And then decisions this year, like the Title VII decision protecting LGBT yes. workers in the workplace, um, you know, written by Justice Gorsuch, signed by Chief Justice Roberts, two very prominent conservative jurists. You know, the tax returns case, which, you know, is kicking around in Manhattan right I, now. I, I heard. In, in which, you know, even Trump's own appointees, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, vote against him. Hmm. So that's why I get scared about monkeying with the court. You know, it's interesting because when you and I last worked together uh, in the Obama administration, uh, we worked on the Justice Department's cases in the Supreme Court. You were the deputy solicitor general. I was working for the attorney general. And then our careers went in such different directions. Uh, and now you are a high priest of the high temple of the law. And I'm trying to figure out in one local jurisdiction how to produce justice. And sometimes the Supreme Court feels really far away uh, from the kinds of decisions I think I have to make. And I wonder uh, if you find guidance in the Supreme Court's jurisprudence in criminal law in the last couple of decades uh, that you can really sort of reduce to what I should be thinking about and learning and following as I try to do this work on the ground. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of synergy between the two because the Supreme Court sets the rules. What is constitutionally required for prosecutors? How much evidence do they have to turn over to the defense? What does that right to counsel look like? All sorts of really important decisions. But there's also beyond the decisions and what's legally required, what's wise. And sometimes you have jurists, and Justice Otomayor is better at this than anyone, who are also writing for prosecutors saying, Look, maybe this isn't strictly required by the Constitution, but it's a good thing for prosecutors to do anyway, voluntarily. And, you know, that's where there's so much opportunity. You think about bail, for example. Yes, there are a bunch of constitutional challenges to bail, and I'm bringing some of them, and I deeply believe in them. Over 60% of people in jail are jailed before trial, when there's presumed innocent. And so, you know, I find this a bizarre, crazy Soviet system. Um, but apart from the constitutional question, there's the policy question. What are you going to do about it? And, you know, that's where I feel like and why I'm, you know, so glad to see you stepping up into this role in public life, because you can do a lot regardless of what the Supreme Court says. The Supreme Court's just going to tell you the minimum of what you should do. But Beyond that, there's so much discretion. And I want to say, Neil, this is so helpful the way that you've laid this out, because I agree with you that it's about the voluntary choices that prosecutors make, the way we use our discretion, for which we don't have a ton of guidance from on high, uh, where justice is ultimately done. And this search for norms, I think, is really everything right now in our work. It's true that, you know, there aren't that many precedents um, for prosecutors that do act in a balanced way. Um, they've often erred too much on the side of zealous uh, advocacy um, and, you know, throwing the book at someone, as the quote goes. Um, I'm a special prosecutor in the George Floyd case, um, and obviously it's a pending case, so I, I don't want to say too much about it. Um, but I will say um, working with the Minnesota Attorney General's office has been a real privilege um, because, um, the attorney general is Keith Ellison, and he's got this great team of lawyers under him. And it's like what we've just been talking about. It's like calibrated prosecution, like trying to figure out and always be truly seeking. And I know it sounds hokey, but what's the just thing to do? 
And obviously, as prosecutors, you're advocates. You know, there's no doubt that you're arguing a position. Um, but that position can't just be like some sort of negotiating tactic, like, you know, charge the hardest thing ever in order to force something. You know, it's got to always be like, what's the right thing to do? There are these examples out there now, and um, they're in many different jurisdictions. And uh, watching this office, you know, gives me a lot of hope and hope for, you know, your office, other offices across the country that you'll be following in that tradition. That is exactly what I'm trying to do. And I'm excited to see the example that uh, that you are setting. Now, this is doable. This is achievable. I rely on you and I know many other people do. Neil, this is the part where we go out for a drink. I miss getting to hang out with you and I hope that happens sooner rather than later. I hope so too. Well, good luck to you. Um, Thank you so much. Very exciting, glad you're doing this. Hearing is produced in partnership with Pushkin Industries. Our producers are Sam Dingman and Camille Baptista. Our engineer is Evan Viola. Special thanks to Malcolm Gladwell and Jacob Weisberg. This podcast is paid for by New Yorkers for Tali, and Neil's appearance on the show does not constitute a political endorsement. I am running to be District Attorney of Manhattan and to set a national example in delivering safety, fairness, and justice for all, especially our most vulnerable. If you like what you've heard, go to tali4da.com to learn more about my campaign. I'm Tali Farhadian-Weinstein. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time on Hearing. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey 
today.